No worries. So I'm reading from Romans chapter 2 this morning, um, starting at verse 17 and through to 3 verse 8. So Romans 2 verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What advantage then is there being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we may say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dean. And to everyone else, good morning. Uh, if you're uh, new to CVAC online and we haven't met, my name's Ben. Uh, I have the joy of pastoring our night church at the Hub Congregation and also the joy this morning of uh, speaking on this uh, wonderful part of God's Word uh, that you've just heard read. I'm going to lead us very briefly in prayer and then we're going to get stuck into it together. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Father God, that you speak to us powerfully through the Word in the power of your Holy Spirit and that us not being physically together uh, doesn't ultimately hinder that process. Father, please help us to set aside hindrances and distractions and uh, to sit in joy under your word and to be taught by it so that we might become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Usually, 
achieving 99.9% on any score for any measure is more than enough. If you get 99.9 in your HSC result for any academic path, that is more than enough. If you score 99.9% on your job performance review or increase in productivity at your place of work, for goodness sake, apply for a pay rise. It is more than enough. If you want to disinfect something, you can buy products that kill how much? 99.9% of germs. Given that our healthy bodies carry stacks of germs all the time, 99.9% is certainly enough. Mind you, I can understand how it you know, is kind of annoying to know that there's that 0.1% of germs that remain. In my juvenile moments, of which there are many, I like to imagine that last 0.1% of germs becoming like radicalised germ terrorists seeking violent revenge. You killed my whole family! Prepare to die! <laughs> and I bring that to your attention because every time you use the spray and wipe now, you'll have that image in your head. But... There are times, even though it's rare, where even 99.9% is not enough. Uh, When it comes to something serious like a malignant cancer, the basic treatment philosophy is to kill 100% of those rogue cancer cells. You don't get a pass with 99.9% when it's life-threatening, only 100%. The complete and absolute annihilation of every single last one of those cancer cells is the desired outcome, which is why when people are cleared, they still have to get checked down the track just to make sure they killed every last one of them. Now, I mention this because in our passage for today that Dean just uh, wonderfully read for us, the Apostle Paul is addressing an issue, one of those rare issues, where a result of 99.9% is still not enough. Let me explain what I mean by that. Paul has opened this grand letter to the Romans with a summary of God's ultimate message to humanity, the gospel. God the Son has had an earthly life in which he's died and risen to become the Son of God, the Christ. And this means that the righteousness of God has now been made available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. But as we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, it is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. For in and of ourselves, we have absolutely no righteousness upon which we can stand in the judgment of the Holy God, which is currently being revealed and will be given with finality on the last day. So Paul is at pains to show just how futile it is to think that we have any of our own righteousness to offer. From the second half of chapter 1, we heard a couple of weeks ago that humanity has turned away from the Creator, even though we have no excuse for doing that. With corrupted minds and hearts, humanity chose to worship the creation rather than the Creator. They know about God's invisible qualities and divine nature, yet they deliberately suppress that truth and live in defiance of Him. Then, as we learnt last week from the first half of chapter 2, Paul changes his language from general humanity, they, to specific people, you. And I just want to be clear that I include myself in the the you, right? To make the charge that if you think that you are somehow any better 
than the depraved mass of rebellious humanity, then you're simply storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. So at this point, the Apostle Paul is perfectly placed to speak about how God's righteousness is now available and that there's no one on earth who has any hope of being righteous without it. You'd think that any more condemnation would be flogging a dead horse. It would be totally redundant for Paul to labour his point any further. And it almost is. However, there is one final frontier, one last conceivable stronghold upon which it would seem that a person could claim some kind of righteousness from themselves in the sight of God. God himself had given his perfect law to his ancient chosen people, the Jews. That law was the embodiment of knowledge. It was made to make Israel the envy of the other nations. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 4. The law itself included provision for the forgiveness of sins. For example, in Leviticus chapter 16. So if God himself has given such a word and his ancient people had sought to live in accordance with it, then surely being a Jew made you a possible exception. Surely relying on something God himself had given should mean that in some way you're separated from the rest of the sinful mass of humanity. Perhaps you even have some small level of innate righteousness that means judgment does not apply to you entirely. Paul may be right to place even 99.9% of humanity under the wrath of God, but you, as a committed Jew, could surely be the 0.1% exception. Uh, Incidentally, after the Holocaust, there was a movement among some Christian scholars to assert that Jews are saved under the Old Covenant, whereas Gentiles are saved under the New. It was seen as insensitive and even anti-Semitic to suggest that Jews require faith in Jesus in order to be saved. Could being a Jew make you that 0.1% exception? Paul's answer is an emphatic, very strongly stated no. And this morning, it's our job to carefully understand and appreciate why because it actually has some serious implications for us. So let's look at it together. Beginning at verse 17, as Dean read, Paul says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, this might be lost on us in our culture, but you've got to understand, by far, this is the most confrontational that Paul has been in Romans up to this point. His focus has narrowed from the global they to a group of individuals, you, now to a subset of those individuals for whom he immediately questions their cherished identity. If you call yourself a Jew. 
Imagine a woman saying to some other woman who happens to have three children, if you call yourself a mother, my heart rate increases just thinking about where that conversation's going to go. You know it's not going to be pleasant. You know it's confrontational. And to make it even sharper, the things Paul associates with Jewish identity are all true and real and correct. Verse 17, Jews should rely on the law. Leviticus 18.5, keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. They should boast in God. Psalm 119.164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous law. Verse 18, the law of God does instruct you on what's superior. Isaiah 51, 7, hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart. Verse 19, some of you will know this by memory, the law of God is a lamp for your feet and a light for your path, Psalm 119, 105. Verse 20, it does make wise the foolish, Psalm 19, 7. And it is supposed to be taught from one generation to the next. Impress these things upon your children, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. So it's with eyes wide open that Paul knowingly goes for the jugular and deliberately questions the cherished identity of his own people, the Jews. And the way he does it, at first, kind of looks like he might have a bit of a weak argument, a bit of a weak case. Look, verse 21, Paul goes, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Well, Surely they do. I mean, a dedicated Jew would meditate on God's law day and night, someone. He continues, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Well, I'm sure there's some people that steal in every culture and the Jews might have been reluctant to pay their taxes to Caesar, but that's a bit more of a political issue. Verse 22, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Well, we know that Jesus teaches the truth when he says you look on a woman lustfully, that constitutes adultery, but prior to that, it's likely that many Jews, at least, didn't physically commit adultery. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Pagan temples have all sorts of statues you might steal, but that would be a pretty embarrassing thing for a Jew to be seen with, a little pagan idol, given that they worship the only one and true God who, who is one. Verse 23, you who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? Well, no one's perfect, and Jews know they're not perfect either, but the law includes provisions for the forgiveness of sins that aren't high-handed. So it seems Paul has a bit of a weak argument. But of course, then comes the devastating, fatal blow. When you consider Israel's history, it's one of sordid and blatant disobedience every one of those areas from the golden calf at Sinai to the Baal statue in the false temple of Samaria the history of Israel is one of idolatry from the immorality of David and Bathsheba to the men in Malachi's day breaking faith with the wives of their youth Israel has a history of adultery that's why Israel's history itself had been under the judgment of God the northern tribes were dispersed. The southern tribes of Israel were sent into exile. And it was there in exile for which the most condemning words used in Romans so far were first written. Verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As if that's not enough. Here's a damning lesson from the law itself 
to seal the coffin. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. And let's not forget, friends, circumcision is the cherished identity of the Jews. Verse 26, so then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, says Paul, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And you can hear the echoes of the way that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for seeking praise from other people rather than from God. To summarise this big chunk quite simply, having God's law does not automatically make you somehow better than the pagan Gentile. In fact, given that God judges perfectly and knows everyone's thoughts and everyone's heart, There are Gentiles more righteous than those who identify as the people of circumcision. If there's any last Jew still standing who can still bear to listen to Paul at this point, they might well ask the question, well then, what advantage is there in being a Jew at all? Is there an advantage in being a Jew? Well, the answer is yes, but it's a sobering and a sad kind of yes. The advantage in being a Jew is that you could have at least known that you have no advantage. Let me explain that. We'll see how Paul sets it up. Chapter 3 and verse 1. He poses the question that he imagines people ask. What advantage then is there being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Or much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Good point, Paul. Like we saw in the first week, the gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. We know that the gospel message, which necessitates that salvation is by faith in Christ alone, was a message promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, the Scriptures that those Jews had been entrusted with. Uh, We call it the Old Testament. If you're a Jew, you call it uh, the Tanakh or sometimes the Torah, which can refer to either the first five books or generally to the whole of uh, the Old Testament. But of course, Having the Old Testament scriptures isn't nearly the same thing as being declared righteous on account of living in accordance with them. The scriptures themselves make that clear. Even the great King David, the man after God's own heart, would testify that ultimately God alone is faithful. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful, asks Paul, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Well, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As he is written, Paul then quotes the great King David after he'd committed adultery and murder, quote, so that you, God, may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. God alone is the one who can speak and and prevail in judgment over sinners. Of course, you could make a perverted case that being disobedient to the law is somehow good because it shows God to be even more righteous. But that's such a dumb argument that Paul says we shouldn't even dignify it with a response. 
Look how he talks in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings our God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say, that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? Because you remember, Jews already know and accept that God will judge the world and he will obviously do that fairly. Verse 7, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? And what's Paul's long, well-thought-out theological argument? Their condemnation is just. In other words, that's so stupid, I'm not even going to bother with it. No. The advantage in being a Jew and having the Holy Scriptures is that you have more than just the creation to know that you're without excuse. You have the very thing that makes you conscious of sin and therefore of your need for God's righteousness rather than your own. As we'll see next week, Paul will go on to say that through the law we become conscious of sin and that therefore Jews don't have any ultimate advantage. The advantage of being a Jew is that you could have at least known that you have no advantage and so you're ideally better placed to receive the good news of Jesus by faith. That is why the gospel is first in terms of applicability for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And by the way, that remains the case for today. God's chosen people are still those whose heritage involves being entrusted with the words of God. Sadly, and this might come as a shock to some people, but sadly, modern-day rabbinic Judaism has moved very far away from the Scriptures. And most Jews you meet are likely to be fairly unfamiliar with their Torah and their Tanakh. So I advise people to tell the Jews, if you should come across one, the wonderful news of Jesus in just the same way you'd tell anybody and everybody else. But back to our original question. Why is Paul so doggedly determined to stamp out every last bit of possibility of any scrap of human righteousness whatsoever? Why will Paul not settle for 99.9% condemnation and only be satisfied with 100%? Indeed, as we'll see in next week's passage, why will Paul again pan back out to focus on the whole world a second time? to assert that there is no one righteous, not even one, and the whole world is accountable to God? Well, it's simple. Because to get this wrong means you cannot be saved. Either God alone does absolutely everything necessary to give you His perfect righteousness, or you cannot be justified in His sight. It's actually out of an intense love that Paul gives such condemnation. Either the cancer cells are eliminated 100% or you're still someone who has cancer. A woman can't be half pregnant. She's either pregnant or she's not. A person's own righteousness plays no part whatsoever in their being justified before God. It's either 100% Jesus' righteousness conferred upon them and credited to them or they are not saved. If you think your salvation is 99.9% the work of God and you've contributed 0.1% of your own righteousness, 
something of your own moral goodness, something of your religious practice or habits, something of your good works, something even of your choice to turn and put your faith in Christ, then you have not understood the truth of the gospel. Your salvation is at stake. You see, if even God's ancient chosen people to whom he entrusted his word and gave his law cannot be declared righteous in his sight by relying upon that good law, that good word of God, then you and I certainly have no hope. In fact, if we were to take today's passage in isolation, the key point would be entirely negative. It'll be that there is absolutely nothing anyone can ever rely on to be righteous in God's sight. Thank God, the broader context for this part of Scripture means that we can get to the point where we can add a few more words. There is absolutely nothing anyone can ever rely on to be righteous in God's sight except faith in Christ alone. One of the biggest and most obvious implications for us is that this teaching underpins Christian humility. You may have heard the saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. It's a saying that we rightly apply to ourselves, especially when we witness the failings of others. That person has done that horrible thing, but you know what? Apart from God's grace, I'm equally sinful. I would have done the same thing. And it ought to be something, this this Christian humility, it ought to be something that commends the good news of Jesus to outsiders. There ought to be no such thing as a Christian elitism, simply Christian thankfulness for what God has freely given us. Also, whilst uh, the vast majority of us are not Jews, on two separate occasions just this week, people who had the great blessing of being raised in a Christian household said to me that they perceive a similar danger to what Paul anticipates here. Uh, The thinking that because of your upbringing and background, you're somehow a little more worthy of being saved than others. Your sin, if you've been raised in a Christian home, is likely not to have been as, as extreme as those without a Christian upbringing. So it's not too difficult to think that my status as a child of God has come about on account of my faith in Christ plus the fact I was born into a Christian family. Uh, And this wasn't me, this was actually two people from a Christian family who told me that they saw this when we we looked at that bit of the Bible together. Uh, If that is you, you need to remember that God chose you to be in Christ before the creation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1. Even though it is likely that one of the earthly means God used to bring about your salvation was by giving you the gift of Christian parents. If you have had a Christian upbringing, thank God and praise God for that. Thank your parents. Thank God for your parents. Uh, But yeah, keep reminding yourself that your salvation was nicely contingent upon the house you were born into. Uh, One last thing is that this ought to affect and impact our evangelism. I I struggle we're seeing those who are yet to put their faith in Christ in the way that God sees them. 
as having no hope, no righteousness of their own that they can offer, and therefore a desperate need of the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's easy for me to think that niceness, and people are nice and lovely, well, in our neck of the woods they usually are, that, that somehow that, that kind of gets in the way, I guess, of seeing them uh, in the way that God sees them. But I know of myself that I have absolutely no righteousness upon which I can stand in the judgment of God. It's entirely the righteousness of Jesus that has been conferred upon me by faith. And that needs to impact the way that I think about how I approach uh, other people, even people that identify within some kind of Christendom, whether you're Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, that Catholic, it's just as easy that you might come across someone who, who relies upon their religious identity rather than their faith in Christ for salvation. To that end, let me uh, conclude briefly in prayer and then we'll cross over to uh, my lovely wife Stacy, who will lead us in further prayer. But I'll conclude our sermon in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing love, the same love that's reflected in Paul that would drive him to be so thorough in the way he condemns any possibility of any skerrick of human righteousness because it is through faith in Jesus alone and on account of his righteousness alone that anyone can stand before you. Heavenly Father, where we have erred, where we need to be corrected by your word, where we have thought that on account of our upbringing or our good works that we stand justified before you, even to the degree of 0.1 of a percent. Please correct our thinking. Please renew and transform our minds that they would align with the truth. And Father, may this wonderful teaching uh, help us uh, in seeing others come to know and love the Lord Jesus as we have. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.